This week on the West Block, throne speech fallout. We've looked at this speech from the, the throne and Conservatives cannot support it. There's a lot here that we're pleased to see, but we need to know exactly when we can take it to the bank. We don't want to see more words. Canadians need action. They're worried, they're afraid, they're struggling. Provincial pushback. There are more policies that would invade provincial jurisdiction than I could count. Now's the time to invest in people, but invest with a focus. And the second wave of COVID-19. In our four biggest provinces, the second wave isn't just starting, it's already underway. The situation facing my family shows that we must remain extremely vigilant in our battle against the spread of COVID-19. From Global News, I'm Mercedes, and this is the West Block Podcast. No fall election. That is the big news from late last week. As the Liberals and NDP come to a deal, the NDP supporting the throne speech, all of this as Canadians are facing down a second wave of COVID-19. What does it all mean for Canadians' health and the economy? Joining me now is Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland. Thank you for making time for us. Great to be with you, Mercedes. You know, you've had an incredibly busy week, not only with the throne speech, but also with the rising COVID rates. I think a question on a lot of Canadians' minds is whether we are prepared for a second wave, because we've known this was likely coming for some time, and yet it feels like governments at all levels are still really on their back foot and reacting. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, Mercedes, I want to say thank you for starting with that question because I think that is the most urgent issue right now. I think, as the Prime Minister said earlier this week, and as Dr. Tam said, and as public health officers across the country have been saying, we really are at a crossroads with COVID right now. Uh, I think we are in a second wave, but I really want to say to Canadians, let's not give in to despair. Let's realize that the future is totally in our own hands. It is in the hands, literally in the hands, but you know, also in the mouths, masks, of every single Canadian. And if we take the right action right now, every single one of us, we can crush the virus. It doesn't need to get out of control. So the first thing I wanna say is please, Let's all do that. And the way to do it is, yes, wash our hands, yes, wear masks, but also let's cut back on unnecessary social interactions. So really, this is a week, I think, about really sort of um, sounding the clarion and saying to each other, to ourselves, let's not let this happen again and let's each one of us take responsibility. Do you think that it's time for the federal government to take over on testing? I know it's a provincial responsibility, but during this pandemic, your government has gotten involved numerous times at the provincial level. It's one of the most effective ways of stopping the spread of the virus. And it seems like really provinces and cities are struggling there. So is it time for you to set out a national testing strategy? Um, 
You know, I have to say, Mercedes, I have a huge amount of sympathy for the vast challenge that provinces and cities and municipalities across the country and public health agencies across the country are grappling with right now. We have been working very closely with them since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And actually, I think one of Canada's success stories so far has been close cooperation of all levels of government. When it comes to testing, one of the things that was really important for us in the safe restart agreement that we concluded this summer was to provide additional financial support to provinces for testing because we all know how important that is. And I just really want to say to the provinces, to municipalities, to public health agencies across the country, we are here to support you in any way that you need that support. One of the things announced in the, in the throne speech was the creation of a new sort of rapid testing surge team at the federal level, which is going to be able to go in and provide extra testing and tracing support in parts of the country that need it. Do you think that, especially as the finance minister, we are headed for a recession given there is a second wave and there could be lockdowns? Um, Mercedes, we are already in a really significant economic downturn. At the beginning of this year, we were in the deepest economic crisis since the Great Depression. We've actually had a stronger than expected rebound, which is really good news. But even now, after significant recovery, the Canadian economy is further behind than we were at the depths of the 2008 recession. So we have suffered a real blow, and it's not surprising because the way to fight COVID has been to shut our economy down. So yes, this is significant, but I have real confidence that we can get through it. Our economy was very strong going into this crisis, and there is absolutely no reason we are not going to come roaring back. I'm very encouraged by the stronger than expected recovery we've seen so far. And the final thing I'll say is the very best economic policy is a strong health care response. If we can crush the curve now, if we can stop the second wave in its tracks, that's the best economic policy we can have. In the throne speech, you proposed a lot of expensive programs. There's still ongoing emergency response programs for the pandemic. Your government has justified this by saying that interest rates are low now and you have to spend as long as you're basically in this reactive position with the pandemic. But eventually those interest rates will go up uh, and Canada and Canadians will have to pay for that. Are you concerned about the country's economic future and where is the ceiling for how much you're willing to spend? Because yes, we are in an emergency now, but this situation could go on for years with a pandemic. Well, there were a lot of questions in there, Mercedes, so let me try to take them <laughs> point by point. And let me say, you know, first of all, of course I'm concerned. Uh, I think that now more than ever in this extraordinary time when we are have having to do things that I think six or seven months ago none of us could have imagined would be possible. Like, consider, we actually shut down a huge part of our country's economy in the spring. We actually told people not to leave their homes. That's a very big deal and I think would have been unthinkable for any of us at the beginning of the year. So this is an extraordinary time. We are having to spend extraordinary amounts of money to fight this pandemic. And yes, that does mean as finance minister, I am very concerned and I believe there is a tremendous onus on us, the federal government, to be very careful, 
to be very thoughtful, to be very prudent about these extraordinary expenditures. I also think that it's important to appreciate that not all spending is created equal. And I would put in an entirely separate category the really significant but one-off time-limited spending that we are doing right now to fight the pandemic. Spending to buy va vaccines, spending on the testing you and I have been talking about, spending to support Canadians and Canadian businesses as we do the things we need to do to fight COVID. It's a lot of money to be sure, but this is one-off. This is spending that will come to an end when the coronavirus is defeated. And I actually have a lot of confidence that that is going to happen and that it is not years away. And when it comes to that spending to fight the virus, my message to Canadians is we will do whatever it takes. And the reason for that is we can't afford not to. The cost of inaction today is much, much higher than the cost of action. But it is also the case, Mercedes, that there is another kind of spending, and that is spending for new permanent programs that would last past the fight against coronavirus. And I think we have to take quite a different attitude when it comes to evaluating that kind of spending. When it comes to that kind of spending, I think we have to take our cautious, careful, thoughtful, Canadian, time-honoured approach. And that's what we're going to do. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland and also our Finance Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. Really good to talk to you, Mercedes. Joining me now is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. Uh, Mr. Singh, you are really sort of the man of the weekend here. You have managed to get a deal with the government. There will be no fall election. Can you tell us the details of this deal? We knew already that you'd seen an increase to the supplement for those who have lost their jobs as a result of COVID-19. But in particular, you've managed to also lock down sick leave for Canadians. Who exactly does that apply to? So first off, uh, I'm really proud of the work that our team has done together. We've been able to push back against the cuts that the Liberals were bringing in, where they were going to cut the help from 2000 to 1600 a $400 cut to families that cannot go back to work. So we're able to restore and keep that at $2,000. That was a massive gain for people. The second piece was we wanted to make sure there was paid sick leave in a pandemic with a second wave. We wanted to make sure that no worker would ever have to make that impossible choice between going into work sick or staying at home and not knowing if they could pay the bills. So we were able to obtain commitments today that will be in a proposed legislation on Monday that will ensure that Canadians can, can rely on the first of its kind in the history of our country, a federal um, paid sick leave. This is a, a massive step forward to our ultimate goal of a permanent paid sick leave for all Canadians. And what we were able to do, really the, the scale of the difference was, the Liberal proposal would have helped thousands of Canadians we expanded it to include millions of Canadians. And so that's the effect, that millions will be better off because of the work that we did and because of the, the hard work and the fight that we put in place for, for Canadians. From a political angle, are you at all concerned that most people are going to give the Liberal government credit for this? They're not going to say, oh, the NDP went to bat for me. Uh, they're going to see Liberal names on those checks. Well, I, I just want Canadians to know that throughout this pandemic, we've been fighting for them and we'll continue to do that. The only reason why we were able to 
make the response to COVID-19 a better response, a more compassionate response, one that didn't exclude as many people is because New Democrats were there to fight for them. And I hope people remember that we will always be there for them. That's our goal. We're, we're focused on people. And, and this, what we've achieved is the first of its kind. It's very historic. The first ever uh, bold step forward to the first ever history in our country to allow people to have paid sick leave. This is a massive step and we're going to keep on fighting though. It's not good enough to just have this during a pandemic. We want to always have paid sick leave for all Canadian workers. So I hope Canadians can know they can count on us that we'll fight for them. You've raised a lot of questions about the ethics of this government. You and your caucus have been extremely critical on everything from the WE scandal to SNC-Lavalin. You're now the party that is responsible for keeping them in power. Are you comfortable with that? Well, I know that uh, the goal right now should be about getting help to people. And because that's our focus, this is the best way to deliver the help that Canadians need to continue to find ways to force this government to do what's right. I am still concerned about the fact that they seek to use every opportunity they can to help out their friends and get caught up in scandals where it's hurting people. You know, this WE scandal really hurt students. At the end of the day, it hurt Canadians. So I am worried about that. But uh, I believe that what I can do with the position I have is to keep on fighting for people and use the leverage we have to deliver the programs that they need. And that's what we've been able have, to do in this case. Have you ceded that power, though, by coming to a deal so quickly? Well, what we've done is a historic, first of its kind, never in Canada's history has there been a federal paid sick leave program, and we've been able to achieve that. That's a pretty significant achievement, the first of its kind in the history of our country, and we're proud of that. And more importantly, we're, we're very proud that Canadian workers will have this program in place. You know, they will have paid sick leave in place. Workers who are afraid of going to work, not knowing what's going to happen if they get sick, can now count on the fact that there will be some help for them. And that, to me, is a, is a massive win for people and something I'm really proud of. Mr. Singh, have you costed out how much all of this will mean? How much is coming out of taxpayers' pockets to pay for these programs? Because they are quite substantial. I, I am worried about that. The cost, of course, is something that, that is something that should worry us all. But I look at this as an investment. We need to invest in workers. We, need, we think about what would uh, a family getting by on $2,000 a month do if they had to all of a sudden try to be forced to get by on $1,600, $400 less? How would they be able to afford their groceries and their bills? It would be cruel to do that. And to think of a second wave where workers can't stay at home because they're afraid to take off work because they don't know how they'll make their bills, that to me is also an irresponsible way to deal with a pandemic. So putting in place paid sick leave and putting in place the same amount of support to families is an investment in people in a, in a second wave of a pandemic. But I think that it shouldn't be these workers and people that pay for this. It should be those who have profited during the pandemic that pay their fair share. And we know that there's lots of Canadians that the ultra wealthy that have made uh, record profits, in fact, during this time. And we can make sure that they are the ones that pay for the recovery. If they profited off the pandemic, they should certainly pay for the recovery. And that's what we should put well, our and, efforts. And nice in theory, perhaps, although it seems like the CRA often has a hard time taxing those who are the most wealthy, not the regular Canadians. One last quick question for you, Mr. Singh. There are those uh, who are cynics out there who say this had nothing to do with what Canadians needed. It had to do with the fact that the NDP does not have the money or the support to go into an election. What do you say to them? Not at all. I've always said, and I've been really clear, that if it came to it, we were ready to fight an election. But it's never been my goal. And that's really important for Canadians to know. I'm not looking for a way to tear down government, to put our country through an election. 
I'm only focused on how I can fight for people, how our team and our party, New Democrats, how we can fight for people and deliver the help they need. That's been my sole focus. Okay. If it was in the best interest of people to fight an election, I'm ready for that. But it's not my goal. My goal is to deliver what people need. We have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Singh. Thanks so much. The search this fall further enforces what we already know, that we must do even more. The federal government will be there to help the provinces increase their testing capacity. Canadians should not be waiting in line for hours to get a test. That was some of the throne speech delivered by Governor General Julie Payette. Premiers across the country have been pushing back against the new priorities laid out by the Liberal government last week. Joining me now to talk more about this is Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister. Premier Pallister, thank you for joining us. I know that you're preparing, as many premiers across the country are, for rising numbers of COVID-19. And in your briefings, you, you've really been sharing a lot of how you feel personally about this. So I'm wondering if you can share with us, how do you feel as Brian Pallister, as well as a political leader in this country, as we head into this next wave of the pandemic? Well, you know, we, we are all of us in Canada and around the world dealing with an unprecedented situation, and that puts stress on the lives of so many people. And it's, it's uh, wonderful, I think, the way that um, most Canadians have really pulled together are supporting each other. We are in this together. It sounds like a slogan because it is, but it, it's meaningful to me because I've seen across the country, I've heard of and seen reports of people doing so much more than they have to just to help not just themselves, but others around their neighborhoods. I know, speaking of hopes, yours were dashed in the throne speech. You didn't get the health transfers that you were hoping from the federal government. Your thoughts uh, on what the Liberal government's priorities are, and do you agree with Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, when he says this is a full frontal attack on federalism? Well, here's what I know. I know that uh, wait times for health care have been growing steadily. I know that, uh, for example, versus 20 years ago, in virtually every category, they're double or triple what they were 20 years ago. I think every one of your viewers would know of someone themselves, a loved one, a friend, uh, who is waiting right now for uh, an appointment, uh, for a diagnostic uh, exam, for a test, uh, for a surgery. It's uh, not a problem that's going to go away by just thinking about short-term solutions. It needs a long-term solution. It's foundational in nature. And at the foundation of Canada, is a healthcare system that should be available when we need it. But what we have here is a situation where demand is rising, uh, partly because baby boomers are getting older. Uh, and as it, uh, those demands rise, the federal government's percentage of support for healthcare drops. When you add those two things together, the result is longer waits. And longer waits are not anything but painful to people. You know, a lump that's got to be examined and tested you wait every single day to find out what the result of that test is in pain and in fear. And families are feeling that. I am getting emails from Canadians saying, you know, please continue the fight for more accessible health care. Uh, COVID's made it evident, obviously, uh, with the delays it's put on the system uh, that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people just because of COVID are waiting for surgeries and procedures right now. But it was a problem long before that. And the federal government needs to step up and resume their rightful role as uh, real partners in, in healthcare, and uh, that's what we'll continue. Uh, premiers across the country 
are unanimous in saying, you know, please step up and address this issue. It was ignored in the throne speech, sadly, but the battle may be over, Mercedes, but the war is going to go on for health care. We need to stand up for Canadian health care. Well, Premier, and I, I think a lot of Canadians share your concern about health care, but the federal government has said that they'd already let you know they were willing to talk to you about more money. It just wasn't going to be in the throne speech. The NDP in your province have criticized you, saying you did not spend full budgets on health care. And at the same time as you're asking for this $70 billion with no strings attached from the federal government, you're also criticizing them on debt. So what do you say to your critics on this? Well, I say this, if your house has an eroding foundation, are you going to invest a bunch of money in redecorating uh, the second floor sitting room? And I would say you probably, if you're a smart manager, you're not going to do that. It'd be a big waste of money. This is a foundational issue for Canada. As far as NDP attacking me, that's their job. They're an opposition party. You know that. But the fact is Manitoba continues to invest more than virtually any, anyone else across the country in health care. The point is we can't continue to do that. Every examination, every study has told the government this is not a long-term way to deal with health care. Provinces don't have the fiscal capacity to continue to spend approaching half or more of their budgets on health care because they also have to do things like education and roads and many other departments, support for families. We, we need the federal government to step back up and be the partner it once was. It used to be a 50% partner in healthcare support, then it was 25. Now we're talking down to around 20 in many provinces. That's not sustainable, and we need to get back to a real partnership on healthcare. I know that this is a problem that COVID has made worse, but it wasn't a new problem a year ago, two, three, four, five, and we've been asking this federal government, as premiers, united, that this be addressed for a long, long time, and it was ignored. And it can't be ignored any longer. Do you have a sense that the federal government is going to step up to the plate? I mean, all the signals we've heard from them, especially from Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, is that they're not going to stop spending until COVID is over and health is a priority for them. Well, all I can say to you is this. Short-term solutions don't work for long-term problems. And this is an emerging long-term problem. It's worsened over years now, and it's going to get worse. More and more Canadians are experiencing this personally, and we need to address it, and we can't just put it off another year or two or five. It's going to get worse. And as it gets worse, real people, friends of yours and mine, are gonna be impacted, and we're going to be the ones who didn't stand up for healthcare? I don't think so. Look, Tommy Douglas, bless his heart, handed us a wonderful, wonderful torch in our healthcare system, but it needs to be carried and held high by people, uh, not because they get attention drawn to themselves for doing so, but rather because it's the right thing to do. And a partnership on healthcare among all governments in this country is what got us the system that we count on now, but we can't count on it getting anything but worse if we don't get the federal government to resume its rightful role as a real partner in supporting healthcare in our country, and that cosmetic billboards don't do it. Premier Brian Pallister, that's all the time we have for, day, but for today, but thank you for joining us, sir. Hey, my real pleasure, Mercedes. Thanks for having me. This week, Armin Yalmizian joins us to talk about women, the economy, and COVID-19. Armin, thanks so much for coming on the show. My great pleasure, Mercedes. 
you have coined two really interesting terms, and we've actually heard them come up in the government's language, in particular in the language of Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, and those terms are the she-session and a she-covery, instead of just the recession and the recovery. Can you tell us a bit about what these terms mean? Well, historically, Mercedes, every recession has been a he session. The term was actually coined by the New York Times in the 2008 recession as uh, something that happens all of the time, mostly in most recessions, more men than women lose jobs initially, and more women pick up the type of jobs that are available in the immediate recovery period, which tend to be lower paid. So historically, every he session is followed by a she covery. This time, everything has been inverted. So the people that lost the most jobs as the economy was put into an induced coma to contain the contagion, mostly were women and low-paid workers. And the people who rebounded the most quickly were men with higher-paid jobs. So everything we know about recession has been turned on its head, just like most of what we're learning about the pandemic. The pandemic is making us rethink what we're doing. What is it in particular about this pandemic and the economic consequences it's having downstream that is having this unusual disproportionate effect on women? Well, it's partly because of the type of jobs that were deemed non-essential, the things that we could shut down to be able to contain the contagion. And so those tended to be in lower paid service jobs in retail, in you know, restaurants, in bars, in personal services like nail salons and hair salons, uh, these, and, you know, gyms and that sort of thing, all of these things were not declared, not essential. And of course, we shut down the schools and childcare centers initially to contain the contagion. Now we're reopening everything. But childcare centers, unlike schools, are not publicly funded and delivered. And so a lot of these things that were market delivered, businesses are shuttering because of this strain of the pandemic's economic consequences, which is lower volume of business, therefore lower revenues, but higher costs. So we are losing childcare facilities that help people get back to work um, at a time where we're treating them still as a business. You know, I just, I, I, I like to use the comparison of, in Ontario, we're told that 40% of childcare centers are not, daycare centers are not reopening according to the Minister of Education. If the Minister of Transport came out and said 40% of our roads and bridges weren't working, you know you'd have a plan because everybody would get it. You can't get to work, businesses can't get their supplies in, they can't get their shipments out. The economy would start to slow down. And in a major way, 40% is a huge block. It's a choke point for recovery. And mathematically speaking, if women don't get back into the game because they were half the employed workforce before, uh, COVID hit, uh, we just can't have a recovery. No, as I've been saying for months now, no recovery without a sheet covery, no cheap sheet covery without childcare. And so can you go a little bit more into that, that childcare and, and what's really needed to help women get back on their feet and back into the workforce? Well, first of all, we can't just stand by and twiddle our thumbs while capacity shuts down. It is the choke point. If women can't have a safe place to put their kids, they can't get back to work. And just a, a moment's context here. Household spending is 57% of GDP. Household spending in every economy, China, US, the, and in, in European countries, is the biggest driver of GDP. And the biggest block of spenders in the economy are households with young children. So if you're gonna take out uh, some significant proportion 
of families' purchasing power because moms make up 40% of household income amongst families with kids, then you know you're cobbling the economy. So without paying attention to the fact that you're collapsed and you're standing by while critical infrastructure collapses and becomes a choke point to recovery, you're essentially, it's either policy incompetence or policy design, but something's like a failure to address the major choke point in the system. But it's also about preparing for the future. It's also not just about warehousing kids so that mommy can go back to work, but investing in early learning because on the other side of this pandemic, we've got decades of population aging staring us down and we're going to need all hands on deck. Well, one of the questions that I have in the short term and that a lot of women who were still working through this uh, and were fortunate enough to keep their jobs found themselves caught between trying to care for their children and not just young children, school-aged children as, as the school shut down too, um, and trying to telecommute at the same time. It's a lot to juggle. We're heading into a second wave. What is your advice to the government when it comes to schools and childcare? Should those stay open so that women can continue to work? They can what we need is a national protocol on what to do, because right now nobody knows what the rules are. And, you know, we've had six months to figure this out. This isn't rocket science. We've got other nations that we can uh, compare ourselves to and learn from, like Japan, like South Korea, like New Zealand, like France, like Denmark. There's plenty of examples on how you keep a system open, but keep it safe. But what we are failing to do is investing in quality childcare and uh, making sure the schools, when they open, are safe to reopen in too many of our largest labor markets. So, you know, the lessons are there to be drawn from, but for some reason we're not drawing on them. I think, I, I can't really tell why that is, unless we are still kind of locked in a 20th century idea that, you know, raise, having kids is a personal choice and deciding to go to work when you have kids is also a personal choice. Man, like the economy functions it is half held up by women. You cannot ignore the needs, the infrastructure needs of both men and women, and now our children. And that relies on quality, high quality childcare, which relies on a workforce that's also supported with training and decent working conditions. And the ability to take sick days, for heaven's sake, what are we waiting for? I know that you wrote uh, a memorandum titled Investing in Early Learning and Child Care to the Minister of Finance, the Prime Minister's Office, and to the Privy Council Office. What were your recommendations and your message to the government in there? Well, you know, the big pushback on child care has been for decades, but, 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 but jurisdiction. And the federal government's uh, failure to play has been mostly because the cupboard is always bare. Why is the cupboard always bare? Because every time we have extra money, we give it back in tax cuts. Okay. We now have got a pandemic reality that says we have to spend more. We have to spend more and a lot more. And the memo that I wrote says the federal government can play by picking up its pace in terms of being a true partner with the provinces that are doing, have been doing all the heavy lifting on uh, early learning and childcare thus far. And any additional money that goes through has to be buying change, has to be invested in how we close gaps in access to great quality early learning and childcare, how we invest in training of all early learning educators so that every child has got a, somebody that knows how to maximize their potential around them, that they're not being warehoused, and that we're treating these workers better than zookeepers. You know, 50 years ago, we were talking about childcare providers 
get paid less than zookeepers, you know, given how much like a zoo a lot of childcare centers and classrooms must be today. They should at least get paid that well and also be trained to do the job properly. So we know how to buy change and build a system. But the threat is there that all we will do is pour money into a, into a, the status quo, which is a market-driven system that fails far too many families. And we can do better with the money that could be flowing from the federal government if it's tied to conditions and outcomes. Has the government given you any sense of a timeline on when they might move on child care? Because one of the criticisms that we've heard, in particular from the NDP, is that's great, they're talking about child care. We've heard uh, promises about child care before. This one given, much more specific in the throne speech. But do you have any sense of how quickly or slowly this might unfold? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's two of us then. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. They know it's urgent. They've been talking about the problem as urgent, how quickly they will move. I have no idea. But, you know, it, I, I fear that the first part of the problem, job one, is to stabilize the cratering of the marketplace. If we're going to be building a system uh, and COVID is blitzkrieging, the capacity to deliver, something has to be done and immediately on stabilizing what we have. And there, the provinces in whose jurisdiction this lies have been standing by idly saying, give us more money for health care. It's like, yeah, okay, but what about stabilizing what you've got on child care or else people can't get back to work? It's in incomprehensible to me, Mercedes. I don't know who's going to move when and whether it's enough but too late to actually stabilize the system to, to keep people who are working now working and get more people who are offered jobs into the market because they can trust that they've got a good place to leave their kids. One last question for you. You talked about other countries that have child care systems. One of the big sort of criticisms and concerns in Canada has been how do you have a child care system that doesn't break the bank? When you look at other countries, what's the model for a child care system that is affordable from a government perspective? Oh my God, thank you for asking me that question because it's the, <laughs> it is the easiest question to answer of any of them, which is that it literally pays for itself. We have evidence from Canada on what happened in Quebec. For every $100 in subsidized care in Quebec, the Quebec government got $104 in new provincial income taxes, and the federal government, which didn't put in one thin dime into this program, got a windfall of $43 extra for $100 Quebec government spent. We have got a quarter of a century of research showing that if you invest in kids with high quality early learning, you reap the benefits for their entire lifetime. They learn, they maximize their learning and their earning potential, and we maximize our returns to the public coffers. Like, it's a no-brainer. I don't know why we haven't done it till now. The only, the only argument for me is that it's been a culture war, that this is about mommy and daddy's choices and we don't Governments don't interfere with choices, but we are now completely reliant on all hands on deck. And population aging will guarantee that women will have to stay in the labor market to stabilize household incomes and to contribute to GDP. We have got to act. And bonus, surprise, it pays for itself. Let's do it. <laughs> Arvind, I love your passion and your knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
Thank you, Mercedes. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block. We'll see you next week.